We'll be seeing lots of prospects as teams limp through the dog days and on into September. But how do we know which prospects should interest us? We'll talk about that and more with Lore Michaels, the Zen master of fantasy baseball, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 18th. It's show number 33 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Laura Michaels from Masters Ball in USA Today about evaluating stretch run call-up prospects, about misleading ADPs, the effects of more 20 home run hitters, Ian Kinsler's surprising honesty, and a cool tune from a band we've heard before here at Baseball HQ Radio. And we'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at another injury in the Mets rotation, another injury for Reds catcher Devin Mazzaracco, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at injuries behind the plate in Houston, injuries in the Seattle and New York Yankee rotations, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on White Sox right-handed pitching prospect Alec Hansen. In our playing time commentary, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at American League Central September call-ups in Chicago and Cleveland. In our frequent flyers comment, analyst Alex Becky looks at Atlanta outfielder Ronald Acuna and Dodgers starting pitcher Wilmer Font. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Gio Gonzalez, Luis Castillo, and other pitchers for this weekend. Finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the retirement of Jared Weaver. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Little League World Series is underway. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Big news of the week, uh, not good news either. Bryce Harper, the fine outfielder of the Washington Nationals, went to the DL. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today. First, what's the outlook for Bryce Harper on this injury? Well, the outlook is, is far better, at least, than the nice, than the Nats might have uh... Uh, might have hoped. Uh, it, he, there was no ligament damage, no tendon damage, uh, so nothing that's going to require surgery, just a severe bone bruise and a hyperextended knee. Uh, and it looks like, like he'll be out until uh, well into September, perhaps the, the rest of the regular season. The, the Nationals are concerned about getting him back for the postseason more than they are for uh, for the regular season at this point. Uh, so for Harper's fantasy owners, they're likely to be without Harper for I would count on his not being there for the rest of this year. Wow, what a blow that is. We come into the stretch, you're looking at Bryce Harper to carry your team, and all of a sudden, so long, Charlie. That's really tough for fantasy owners there. Uh, and kind of one of the reasons that every time you look at Bryce Harper during your auction or during your draft, this is something you always have to keep in the back of your mind. I mean, he has been a little bit on the brittle side. Absolutely. I, You know, one of the one of the uh, uh, the mantras at Baseball HQ is uh, – is uh, injured guys never suddenly get healthy? So if uh, when you've got that kind of a, a kind of a history, 
you've got to figure getting an entire healthy season out of someone who's traditionally or chronically injured is, is unlikely to happen. The interesting thing about it, too, in the great debate between Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, the Harper supporters say he's a couple of years younger than Trout and at a similar spot in his career, which augurs better for him. And then the Trout people say, yeah, but Trout plays. Right. <laughs> That's it. In the meantime, we know Bryce Harper is going to be out for at least the near term and probably, as you say, for the rest of the year. Who gets the playing time in the Nationals outfield? Well, luckily the Nationals have a couple of people coming back that could uh, that could help a lot. Michael Taylor uh, was activated off the DL and is likely to play almost every day. And Michael Taylor, of course, has been very good, uh, surprisingly good so far this season, with a uh, 255 uh, expect, uh, expected batting average, 154 PX, 124 speed. So supplying both some speed and power uh, with without having batting average expense. So Michael Taylor will get most of the playing time. Uh, Jason Worth should be back soon from the DL. Uh, he's expected to play left most days. Uh, we thought the big fantasy winner might be Brian Goodwin here, but uh, uh, Brian Goodwin uh, has, uh, has got a little problem of his own. He's now gone in the DL, uh, and so we'll have to see how long he's actually out. But Brian Goodwin will get some playing time once he returns from the DL himself. Michael Taylor projects the rest of the year, in case you're wondering. He's, uh, we're looking at six home runs, 17 RBIs, and six bags in uh, the remaining six weeks. So that's going to be a nice contribution to a fantasy team. It is indeed. That kind of contribution uh, down the stretch uh, is certainly going to be very useful. I mean, at this point in the year, your your averages are not going to get affected a whole lot. But, uh, uh, but those counting stats, that's what you're looking for. And Brian Goodwin on the 10-day DL, that's a strained left groin muscle, according to BaseballHQ.com, and there's no timetable for his return just yet. Uh, over in New York, the Mets put uh, Seth Lugo, the right-handed starter, on the 10-day disabled list. He has a right shoulder impingement. Nick, I have to ask you, do you know what an impingement is? I keep hearing this word. I have no idea what it means. I, you know, I don't know either. I, I always look at it, and I, I see my guys on my team have it, and I wonder what's wrong with them. But uh, as far as I can tell, it just means the shoulder's sore. Well, he missed two months at the start of the year with an elbow injury, and now he's got this shoulder thing. What's the uh, what's the prognosis here for Seth Lugo getting back into the lineup? Well, certainly, I, I don't think the Mets are going to rush him back. I mean, he's been—they're uh, not going anywhere, and uh, just kind of out of things for this year. And so, they're certainly not going to try to get him back before he's completely healed. Uh, and he's been far a disappointment so far for the year anyway—a 4.71 uh, expected earned run average, a 71 BPV. So, uh, not not a lot of reason to rush him back. That 71 BPV base performance value is a combination of all the metrics we use at BaseballHQ.com, kind of combining them all together into a single number. And 71 is a single number that's not singular, shall we say. Uh, they recalled <laughs> Robert Gesellman, Nick, speaking of disappointments. Uh, I presume that he's going to get most or all of Lugo's innings? He should. At the start of the season, uh, we, we had him on the short list of rookie of the possible Rookie of the Year candidates and were expecting big things from Gesellman. Instead, uh, uh, has not played at all well. A 6.16 ERA and XERA of 4.70, about the same as Lugo's. Uh, and, and how he'll he'll be in, how much longer he'll actually be in the rotation uh, depends upon uh, other when other net bet starters are back, uh, Syndergaard, Matt Harvey, uh, and when they are actually ready to return. Now this raises an interesting question. You say that the uh, correctly that the Mets are going nowhere fast in terms of uh, shots at the playoffs or th those kind of things, and therefore maybe Lugo sits the rest of the year just to get better. Wouldn't the same thing apply to uh, Matt Harvey and Noah Syndergaard at this point? I mean, I, I guess maybe they want to see what they've got bringing them back, but 
is there a possibility the Mets just say, look, we're just going to shut everybody down at this point, hopefully get them healthy for 2018? I would think that's certainly a possibility. I mean, you don't want to rush a prize, a prize pitcher like Syndergaard back and have him re-injure himself. So I, I would be, if I were the Mets, I'd be very careful with both Syndergaard and Harvey in terms of the, the rest of the season. In Cincinnati, the Reds uh, have put Devin Masarako on the DL. He had a power breakout in 2014, but he never repeated it, and it's always been injuries, Nick. Uh, 2015 and 2016, he had hip and shoulder surgeries. That was pretty tough. And uh, as I say this week on the 10-day DL for the third time this season, a broken right foot. Let's start with uh, who gets Masarako's playing time at catcher. Well, let's first of all go with the other way. A broken right foot is not going to heal real, real quickly. So, again, we're talking about somebody who could be out for – uh, uh, almost the remainder of the season. Uh, most of the, the playing time at this point will go to Tucker Barnhart, uh, rule, uh, rookie, uh, rule five, uh, draftee Stuart Turner will probably kind of spell Barnhart, but Barnhart's expected to be the regular catcher with Turner providing some, uh, some rest for him down the stretch. Uh, Barnhart's making better contact than in previous seasons, uh, displaying some solid plate skills, a line drive stroke, uh, really, I think a useful, if he's going to be playing every day, a very useful second catcher, uh, for the uh, the remainder of the season, our projection is two homers, ten RBIs, two seventy batting average. So uh, he's not going. It's one of those things. He's not going to hurt you. Probably not going to help you a lot. But if you're desperate for a second catcher, not going to hurt you down the stretch. Yeah, you got to like that two seventy batting average in particular. If he manages to do that, that's terrific for a second catcher. Heck, in this uh, environment, this day and age, two seventy is just pretty good. Period. It is indeed. I mean, you know, we're we're uh, we're at the point now where we're looking at two fifty and thinking, yeah, that guy's all right as long as he puts up some other stats. So, uh, yeah, two seventy is very nice. I like what the baseball forecaster said uh, coming into the season about uh, Tucker Barnhart. It said uh, he has gradually raised his offensive game from awful to palatable. Precise analytic verbiage. It says. Uh, <laughs> I love it. The Reds recalled outfielder Philip Irvin from AAA Louisville. What about him and his chances of getting some playing time? We haven't made any playing time adjustment for Irvin. He's likely to be in Cincinnati a very, very brief time. Uh, outfielder Scott Shebler is set to begin a minor league rehab assignment and could be activated in the next week. Uh, so Irvin's likely, unlikely to get anything beyond pinch hitting duties while he's up. Over uh, two and two previous calls with Cincinnati. Uh, we profiled him in an April call-ups report. On Saturday, the Milwaukee Brewers acquired second baseman Neil Walker and some cash from the Mets. Uh, they gave away a player to be named later. I guess we'll find out who that is. Tom Kephart covered this for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, first, Nick, I saw Walker playing this week in Milwaukee, but he was playing third with Travis Shaw day-to-day. Are we expecting Walker to play second in Milwaukee like everybody says? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, Travis Shaw will be will be back as soon, uh, very soon, and so Walker's likely to become Milwaukee's primary second baseman, and that's a position that, that Milwaukee has had trouble with. So he really could provide some punch for uh, for Milwaukee down the, the down the stretch. At this point, at this point in the season, Walker has 275 at bats, 11 homers, uh, 273 batting average, 38 RBIs. Uh, could get close to almost half of that in the remainder of the season. We're projected 107 at bats. Uh, four homers, 14 RBIs, 270 batting average. Could actually have some real value playing every day uh, down the stretch. This news seems ominous, Nick, for owners of Jonathan VR and Eric Sogard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, re- reduced playing time, I think, for both of them. 
Uh, they've been sharing second base for most of the season. Uh, Sogard has struggled since he came off the DL, and his playing time has been fading. Uh, Sogard has had some excellent plate skills, but no power. Uh, VR has shown very subpar plate skills, a below average power, a less speed than he's shown in the past. Uh, and so metrics uh, for VR considerably down uh, since the uh, since his, his breakout season, so in 2016. So, um, and Walker's acquisition could also cost utility player Hernan Perez infield playing time. Uh, Perez is not showing the same kind of game that he, he showed us in 2016. Uh, it looked like he might be a real force coming into the season, but that simply is not happening. Boy, I, I have to tell you, I never believed in Sogard in the first place. That looked like uh, a hot streak more than it did like any kind of big change, and I think that was borne out uh, subsequently. And uh, I'm, I am surprised about Jonathan VR. I was telling anybody who'd listened before the season started, I thought last year looked very real to me and uh, just turned out to be anything but, didn't it? It did indeed. I mean, I thought the same thing. VR is one of those guys that looked like you really wanted your roster as the season began. And and uh, if you got him on your roster, you were finding a way to replace him very quickly because it just didn't happen. Finally, Nick, in the batting buyer's guide, uh, columnist Stephen Nickrand looked at uh, hitters showing second half spikes in isolated power and batting eye. Uh, among the names on uh, Stephen Nickrand's list of these power and eye spikes, Mets infielder Wilmer Flores. Yeah, Wilmer Flores. And let's, you know, one of the interesting things about the trade is that Wilmer Flores is, is now looking at some increased playing time. And Wilmer Flores is one of those guys, you know, you hear the name and you go, hadn't he been around for 20, 30 years? And isn't he kind of fading? Wilmer Flores is only 25 years old. So, you know, here's a guy that is, is not uh, even in his peak years yet. Uh, and a guy that we could look on as, as a possible kind of breakout target down, down the line. Uh, didn't fulfill the breakout upside in the first half. Uh, 753 OPS, uh, 167 isolated power, 0.31 batting eye. Those things are not very good. But second half, things are a lot better. 1.111 OPS, uh, 429 isolated power, 0.36 batting eye, uh, hitting 70% of the balls in play as line drives or fly balls. Uh, and for the first time in his career, Posting an 800 plus uh, batting uh, OPS against right handers. So, uh, Wilmer Flores looks like he may be a good stretch target and in keeper leagues may be a good target for next season. Yeah, Wilmer Flores, uh, when you said how young he is, I was actually kind of surprised. It, it, it does seem like he's been around way longer than that. I would have thought he was later in his 20s, but at age 26, he could really be coming into something right, at, right now and, and in the next couple of years. Yeah, you could indeed. So if Wilbur Flores gets the playing time and begins to show the Mets uh, that he's uh, that he can be the kind of ball player we we hoped he would when he first came up, and and that that beginning to look like it's happening here in the second half. So I would not ignore Wilbur Flores at this point in the season for the rest of this season, nor for next year. And of course, with Neil Walker out of the way, that opens up a huge amount of playing time. It does indeed. I mean, we're expecting a lot of that to get shared among other Mets infielders. They've got plenty of them. But, uh, but Flores could be a significant contributor since he can play uh, first, second, and third and can play around that infield. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out again this week. As always, uh, interesting and fun to talk with you, and uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now let's turn it over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. How you doing? 
I'm doing fine, thanks. Hope everything's all right with you out there in SoCal. Let's get on to the show here with Houston. Their biggest issue these days has been pitching, and especially a bullpen that has really been getting tagged lately. They get Tyler Clippard from the White Sox. Uh, looking at Tyler Clippard's performance this year, it doesn't seem like a huge move. It's going to change their outlook or mean much from fantasy standpoint, does it? Yeah, that was a little odd. It was almost like, let's go out and get the best pitcher who's available right now. It, it almost smacks of Houston's desperation and some of the criticism they've been getting for not making a trade deadline move. Uh, 413 ERA, 465 expected ERA, almost five walks per nine innings, 1.3 uh, home runs per nine innings in 48 innings. Uh, he's really no better than fourth right now in the uh, Astro or the yeah the Astros bullpen pecking order. Uh, and I, 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 I think they're hoping that better things happen to them. They're, they're, they're looking at other pitchers. They're trying to get Will Harris healthy again, and uh, Francisco Liriano untracked, uh, and obviously Lance McCullers, uh, the starter, untracked. I just, I don't see Clippert as a big piece either for Houston or for any fantasy owners. I have to take the blame for Will Harris. Uh, I picked him up for my league right after he came off the DL and immediately went right back on the DL. The Liriano situation is interesting because he was up here in Toronto and not doing well as a starter, and he went to Houston, and I guess they were hoping maybe he'd figure it out with uh, maybe a little less uh, need for using third and fourth pitches, but uh, Francisco Liriano hasn't been that great yet either. Yeah, he's always been a little bit streaky, and he still flashes that good stuff occasionally, but uh, hasn't been very good since he's been in Houston. It's a small sample, so uh, maybe Houston can turn him around. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't hold my breath, actually. I don't know what's going on with Francisco Liriano, but while he was here... Uh, he just uh, he just never looked like he was putting it all together at any given time. Like you said, there'd be fits and starts where he looked terrific, but most of the time he looked uh, not lost out there. He actually looked kind of disgruntled, like he didn't like being out there. He wasn't enjoying himself, and maybe that's not so good either. Uh, Houston also put Brian McCann on the DL. He has a sore knee, and this is uh, troubling for Houston. They already had Evan Gaddis on the DL. He has a concussion, so they recalled Max Stassi. So they now have their third string catcher playing first string. There's fourth string catchers playing second string. You wrote about all of this in your playing time tomorrow space covering the American League West. What's going on here behind the plate in Houston and how do fantasy owners play it? Yeah, obviously the the problem here is that there's no real ETA on, uh, on McCann coming back and Evan Gaddis is out. He's had a concussion. And a sore knee in mid-August doesn't doesn't give you a lot of confidence in terms of how many games McCann's going to be able to catch. Uh, he hasn't been great offensively. I think he's hitting somewhere in the 230s. He's got his typical double-digit home runs. Uh, but um, now Houston has a, a, a little bit of a void uh, uh, behind the plate. Um, you know, the, the catchers that they have, uh, uh, Juan Centeno and uh, and Max Stassi, uh, they're obviously backup catchers. They're, they're not they're not awful. I mean, Centeno, uh, uh, he's uh, hit near, actually, he's hit near 300 in the small sample that he's uh, that he's been in Houston. It's less than 30 at bats, uh, but his uh, his his career numbers suggest he's more of a contact guy. He's not going to get a lot of home runs. Stassi, on the other hand, used to be a, a legitimate prospect. He's got pretty good power and patience, uh, and he posted an 8.56 OPS uh, with 33 walks in. Uh, 241 at-bats at AAA with 12 homers, which kind of suggests he still has a, a little bit of something there. The, the biggest issue for fantasy owners is when do the first-string catchers come back? Because if they don't, particularly in deeper leagues, uh, these two guys should be watched. At least they're going to get opportunity. 
I like Max Stassi too uh, on the platoon basis. Uh, against right-handed pitching, he's ca- characteristically been a pretty good hitter. He struggles a lot against left-handers, but uh, he's got a near 900 OPS at the major league level against right-handers. I mean, it's only 40-some plate appearances, so this is not anything we want to hang our hat on, but um, I think Max Stassi could be pretty interesting during the time he's up, uh, especially if he gets to play a lot against right-handed pitching. Uh, in Seattle, their rotation was already reeling. We talked last week about Felix Hernandez going in the DL. Now the worst possible news, uh, Hernandez is no longer the Seattle Ace. I think we can agree it. That was James Paxton. Now he's on the DL. He has what they're calling a pectoral injury, and the pectoral muscles are really important for pitching. He's going to be out at least three weeks, maybe more. That's half of what's left in the season. Now Rod Truesdell covered this at at BaseballHQ.com in Playing Time Today. He reports that they recalled right-handed starter Andrew Moore, who looked less than okay earlier in the season. You wrote about Seattle in Playing Time Tomorrow. Give us the update. How do things look in Seattle, and how do fantasy owners deal with it all? Yeah, it's not good. And this is an injury that Paxton has had earlier in the season, too. He's had some pectoral problems before, and, and you're right. With uh, with uh, just a little over six weeks left in the season, uh, and, and a... And a, and a a rotation that that doesn't have anybody now with an ERA of of less than anything near five. Uh, Seattle's in big trouble. Um, um, they called up uh, Andrew Moore, but he's back down again. He hasn't been uh, he hasn't been particularly good. They've they've tried Marco Gonzalez. Uh, they tried uh, another guy. Am I looking? Andrew Albers. Albers actually uh, came up uh, and and pitched a decent game. He gave them five innings of one run ball. But uh, he's a 32 year old journeyman who who doesn't have great stats as an MLB or um, Seattle's going to be attached to I think every name every pitching arm that clears waivers over the next uh, week or two and uh, the 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 rotation is his the rotation ERA in, in August has been pretty bad I think they're 25th in the in in the majors they've given up nearly six runs a game uh, f- through the month uh, my my best advice here is if you have hitters uh, make sure they're in the lineup against Seattle pitching because I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel here Jock I'm curious what you think about the wild cards status of uh, not only Seattle but a couple of other teams uh, we have the Yankees currently leading the wild card race by three and a half over your angels Surprise, surprise. And then you have a bunch of teams that are like a game, game and a half behind uh, the Angels, which is certainly, you'd think, doable. There's also a bunch more teams that are only three games behind, including Tampa, Baltimore, and Toronto, all in the American League East. But realistically, do teams have to look at this and say, yeah, we can get in, but if we get in, we have to play the Yankees, Aaron Judge, all that kind of thing, in Yankee Stadium. Then if we get through, we're going to have to play uh, the Boston Red Sox or maybe Cleveland, whoever ends up being top dog in the league. Is it sensible, do you think, for these teams to throw in a lot of chips to try to get into that one wild card game? Well, I think at this point in time, because we're past the trade deadline, I think that last part is key. I don't think these these teams are are going to have to throw in a lot of chips just to get healthy arms, which is all Seattle's looking for. I mean, anything can happen in in five, six weeks. Uh, the problem is uh, the arms that are out there, the guys that are clearing waivers, the Derek Collins of the world, I mean, you don't know what they're going to do from, from one day to another. Uh, um, and, and Seattle just got done losing five straight at home, four to the Angels, which is why the Angels jumped back in it. Uh, they're going to have to rely on their offense. I mean, they've, they've, I think they've had two games um, this entire month where they've given up less than three runs, and I just don't see that cutting it. And you're right, going deep into the playoffs uh, for a team like that, that's just not likely to happen. 
a lot could change, of course, if they were to get back James Paxton, if they were to get back Felix Hernandez in time to get into the playoff hunt, if they scraped through that wild card game and actually got into the playoffs. The, the question is, can you get through the playoffs with just three guys? We've seen in the past that it can be done, but the three guys have to be pretty good and they have to be really healthy. And Yeah, they, they, have, they not only have to be pretty good, the starters, but they have to have a pretty darn good bullpen too. And, and Seattle's bullpen isn't, uh, isn't much better than the starting rotation right now. Seattle's not the only bad pitching staff in your American League West. Jock, you cover the division all the time for playing time tomorrow, and you also wrote about the uh, Oakland A's after the Sonny Gray trade as being another staff that has all kinds of opportunity in both the bullpen, where they traded away all their capable relievers pretty much, and their rotation. How much interest should fantasy owners have in any of the contenders for those spots, though? That's the question. Yeah, they shouldn't. Again, I'm I'm looking at both those teams as uh, teams that I want my hitters going up against. Uh, I said that I, I I think I said that Seattle had the 25th best uh, has the 25th best August team ERA uh, through this month. Oakland is 28. They've given up about six runs a game, um, just just a, a little worse than Seattle. And I don't see how Oakland's going to get much. Uh, better barring a turnaround from say somebody like Sean Manaya who I don't know if you've looked at his numbers lately but he's been terrible in the second half uh, ERA and XERA both over five his strikeouts and, and uh, swinging strikes are way off he looks like he's pitching with an injury um, but the entire staff is uh, isn't pitching very well and they're 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 really inexperienced uh, uh, it, it, again, this is a this is a team where uh, if I've got hitters, if I'm looking at at what hitters to pick up, and I see uh, a four game series against Oakland, that's gonna that's gonna weigh heavily in their favor. I do follow Sean Manaya very closely. He's on my team as well. Part of my uh, disastrous pitching situation in Tel Aviv's American League. It's a disaster in many different ways, not least because of Sean Manaya's second half. Uh, in New York, the Yankees sent right-hander Masahiro Tanaka to the DL. He's got some shoulder inflammation, and all of a sudden, the Yankees look like they're having a little shakiness underneath them and as far as the starting pitching goes. Matt Dodge covered the Tanaka situation in playing time today. What's the word here, and who gets his innings? Well, at least early on, it sounds like Tanaka's shoulder inflammation is a result of fatigue uh, um, more than anything else, and they're hoping to get him back quickly. Now, you and I talked about this a few weeks back when Sonny Gray was traded, and the Yankees were actually talking about that that proverbial six-man rotation that never seems to last too long, and this one didn't. Uh, they, they had sent Jordan Montgomery back to AAA to stay stretched out, so he's back in place of, of, um, of Tanaka, and he actually pitched pretty good in that first half. Uh, 3.62 ERA, 8.6 DOM, and, a, and about a 3-1 to one, uh, strikeout to walk ratio over 15 starts and 87 innings. He'd slid a little bit in the second half, which I think is why the Yankees relented and sent him back to the minors. Uh, but uh, the only difference I can see in his numbers over the, his last seven or eight starts is some strand rate and some hit rate issues. So um, for long, as long as Tanaka's out, uh, he's going to be the guy. And I actually think the Yankees have enough depth to cover this. I don't think they're in any trouble from the postseason standpoint. Uh, that's a pretty deep team across the board. I guess we'll have to see. Uh, I like Jordan Montgomery. I thought he looked pretty poised for a young guy, uh, shall we say. I know he struggled a little bit, uh, but uh, I think Jordan Montgomery's a guy to keep an eye on more for later down the road than this year. But even in this year, I think he could do all right. And finally, we mentioned the Angels uh, sneaking up into the uh, wild card race. They're actually in the second spot. And speaking of the DL and pitchers, they got a bit of good news. Andrew Heaney is expected to return to the rotation on Friday. 
Whose spot will he be taking, and what's the outlook for Andrew Heaney for the last six weeks? Yeah, well, well, Jesse Chavez is back in the bullpen, and we've been predicting that for about six weeks. We've just just got the timing wrong a little bit. Uh, the Angels have actually been without a number five starter for a couple of weeks now. They've used rookie Troy Scribner. They got uh, a couple of short inning uh, spot starts uh, from him. Um, so there's an opening. And yeah, Heaney looks actually a little more interesting than most of the back of the rotation names that are cropping up right now. If just because of his experience and, in, and, and ability to pitch uh, competitively at the major league level, he's kind of proved that when he was healthy. Uh, he's coming back awfully quickly from Tommy John surgery. I, I think he only had it uh, in, in July 2016. But he's looked pretty good in his rehab starts. Uh, 28 innings, uh, 29 to 5 strikeout to walk. Uh, he posted a 3.12 ERA in 17 innings in AAA Salt Lake City, which isn't an easy place to pitch. Now, all this said, Heaney lives off command and control. He's not a big strikeout guy, so his upside is limited. Uh, I'm not sure I'd jump in to start him immediately in Baltimore in Camden Yards, which is where he's supposed to pitch this weekend. But again, he's a better flyer than uh, a lot of the starting available starting pitchers that I'm seeing these days. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for grabbing a guy who has at least some pedigree uh, rather than taking a flyer, as you call it, on uh, some of the other guys who are going to be available in free agent pools. But that's really rolling the dice. Uh, Jock, oh, Jock, before I let you go, I just remembered something I wanted to ask you about. Minnesota got some pretty good news. I was listening to a game earlier this week, and they had activated Glenn Perkins, their former closer. Uh, Perkins was a pretty effective closer when he was doing it, but I uh, He's been on the DL for quite a while, and he didn't look so sharp in his first outing. He faced four hitters, I think, against Cleveland, gave up a couple of hits and a walk and a couple of runs. But the Minnesota bullpen is not exactly uh, anchored down. Uh, they have a lot of difficulty choosing who's going to close games, who's going to set up games. It's, it's kind of a mess. Should we be thinking about Glenn Perkins? Well, if, if if you're really desperate for closers, I guess I guess you're looking at the Minnesota bullpen because it is such a – uh, a question mark in the in the late innings. Uh, I I think the tell on Perkins. He's first off. He's been gone for 16 months. The surgery that he had. Uh, I think um, uh, uh, that he actually had to uh, to reattach his labrum uh, um, to the to the bone. Uh, um, it, it, and and he and he hasn't pitched since April of of 2016. Um, when he was healthy, he. He averaged about 94, 95 miles an hour with his fastball, and uh, reportedly now he's sitting about 88, 91. He averaged 91 miles an hour uh, the other day uh, in his first major league outing. So I think that's a bit of a tell. Uh, his 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 rehab wasn't great. He walked a lot of guys. He did strike out 10 hitters in seven innings. So maybe Minnesota's seen something that isn't apparent in the numbers that I'm not seeing. But uh, that that loss of three, four miles an hour on his fastball seems a little bit alarming to me. Yeah, and I'm not sure I, I really buy the 10 strikeouts in the rehab. It's uh, not like you're sneaking any uh, balls over the corner on Mike Trout when you're pitching in single-A rehab assignment. Yeah, and most of the good hitter, hitters are all, they've all moved up a li- level. Some of them are in the majors right now. When, when you're pitching in the, in the minors in, uh, in October, you're, you're, really, you're really pitching against a thinned-out herd. Okay, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out with the American League, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our guest expert interview, it's Lore Michaels, the Zen Master. We'll be right back on Baseball HQ Radio. Myers takes off, pitch in the dirt, no throw, stolen base for Will Myers. 
goes as Hedges will take ball four. Myers take it third. Hunter goes at first. The pitch is strike, and they get him hung up. They're keeping an eye on Myers at third base. Going to try and score. Comes the third of the plate. Baseball HQ Radio. And we heard Will Myers stealing second, third, and home in a single inning. First guy to do it since D. Gordon back in 2006, something like that. Quite an afternoon for Will Myers. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by an old friend of mine and of the program, Lore Michaels from Masters Ball and USA Today. Lore, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Been a while. It, it has, I think, since the earliest part of the season, which is like a million light years ago, Patrick, but it's a, always so fun to be on your show, and you know how it is, even walking, as we always say, even walking down the streets in New York in the snow, we can have a good conversation. Well, Laura, you and I are competitors in the Tout American League League, and it's my duty as a reporter, which overcomes my natural modesty, that obliges me to tell listeners I'm a few points up on you, but neither of us is a threat to be waving the pennant come October. What do you think hasn't worked for your team in Tout Wars this season? Well, I think, I think I'm, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about just my approach in general. I've always pretty much tried to draft out of pitching as a strength, I always draft two closers. I always try to get one A starter and build around that and build up pitching points. And, and it's not like I punt any hitting at all. I try to stay away from buying $35 guys, but I'm really fine with 18 to $23 guys. Um, and I, the last few years, even, if, even doing that, it's just not enough pop. And I think since I am good with pitching, I, I mean, what, what it boiled down to really is, my pitching was good. My hitting wasn't strong enough. I traded some of my pitching for hitting to build that up, and some of the guys got hurt. But basically what that ended up doing was diluting everything and just kind of making me mediocre everywhere. <laughs> so, um, but that's why I'm rethinking it. But, yeah, I have Chris Davis, you know. I traded Dellen Betances for Troy Tulowitzki, thinking that would be a good upgrade over Alcides Escobar, but... Basically, you know, he's, he's been hurt pretty much since I traded for him. And Davis is great, but he can't, apparently he can't carry the title by himself. So that, that, that's what I've pretty much, in. not just to tout, that kind of happened to me in labor. Uh, I did have make the mistake in drafting Aaron Sanchez in all my leagues, who was a waste of 20 bucks wherever I went. So that didn't help. But once again, that tells me pitching so phlegmatic. There's enough guys that come up. Just, you're good at pitching. Just draft hitters and don't worry about feel. You'll get, get get a couple closers, get an ace, and other than that, don't worry about it. Just build out from the free agent pool. Yeah, the one advantage you have, especially in, in a single league format like uh, Tout American League, is that the free agent pool is a lot deeper than it is for hitters, and, uh, and that's why over the last few years I've actually been redirecting more and more money away from pitching and towards hitting because – uh, it's getting to the stage where, especially after a, a four-man reserve, the hitter pool is entirely depleted, and all you're waiting for is guys to get called up. That uh, and some of those are actually taken in the reserve rounds as well. So it's it is really tough to get going. And I think you're right that you can uh, sort of build this build the foundation of a pitching rotation and and a staff without filling it in and then just grab a bunch of cheapos at uh, at the end and and mix and match out of the free agent pool as you go. Well, yeah, and it's it's almost like streaming minor leaguers. I look at that, you know, every week I'll just 
I, I think at least, and, and I'm just projecting what a strategy would be, but I'm thinking every week, just look at the free agent, we'll look at the pitchers that come up, look at who the best potential new starter is that nobody has that, that could be good and just kind of keep streaming them, flipping them around and streaming successful ones and dumping the other guys and ideally out of that build some kind of rotation. But clearly, clearly whatever I used to do 10 years ago that worked really well isn't working too well lately. So, <laughs> you know, it's like playing DFS or, or, or anything like that. I, I think I think we have to be mindful to change. And one of the things, uh, especially in Taos, you know, that uh, the board members and I, I really want to talk about is making sure that we stay contemporary, making sure that we're not getting stale with old strategies and, and old, old members of the industry who are certainly pioneers and certainly have a place. But, you know, I hate to quote Woody Allen, but, you know, relationships are like sharks. they got to keep moving or they'll die. And I think business is like that, too. And we have to, you know, whether, whether we like it or not, we have to acknowledge the direction the game is going. And if you want to stay vital in the business uh, as a player or as an industry, you have to move with it. You mentioned uh, you're struggling in labor. You have some other experts league teams. Uh, are you struggling across the board? Uh, most of them are. Uh, my Stratomatic team is in a rebuild here, and boy, I can't wait for next year because I'm going to have a monster team. Um, I'm going to actually—I I know I'm going to threaten to win, and that's a 30-team league, which is very tight. So um, I'm in great shape in Stratomatic. I have—I have like a potential outfield of uh, Marcelo Zuna and Domingo Santana and Leori Garcia, which might not sound like much, but when there's usage rules in 30 teams. And you have to you have to have a backup catcher. I always call it the Paul Bacco League because if you don't have an extra left-handed platoon catcher, you're toast. Uh, and I have everything. I have six starting pitchers. I have a closer. I'm very excited about that because that's a tough league. And, and actually, um, um, Brent and and Ray sort of sponsored a uh, uh, at, at at first pitch Arizona last fall. They sponsored a rookie league. And, and actually, I'm, I'm, I'm winning that pretty well. I, I'm, I'm very happy about that. So I have, I have some successes amongst, amongst my failures. When you say it's a rookie league, do you mean it's all rookies? Yeah, we drafted, uh, we drafted and then we did a little panel the last day. But yeah, the, we all had, there were, I think, 10 of us, uh, including, um, I think Brent drafted also, uh, Eric Carabell, Brian Walton, um, Clay Blessing, uh, or, um, or Chris Blessing and Clay Link. Anyway, we all drafted um, five pitchers and nine position players, and then we discussed them as part of the fall league, uh, why, who we picked and why. But, they, but, but Brent set up standings, and the, the parameters were uh, the, the person, the player still had to have rookie status. And I got Aaron Judge, which helped a lot. No kidding. But so basically it was drafting those guys in prospects. And I did get Hunter Renfro and I got Aaron Judge. So those guys helped a lot. But I also drafted Jacob Faria and Anthony Senzatella and uh, Matt Chapman. So I made some pretty, all, all five of my pitchers were brought up and have big league time, which not everybody has. And actually the biggest threat against me is Jock Thompson, who I think he's got Cody Bellinger. So he's in, 
be dangerous. Well, Laura, speaking of rookies and prospects, I know that's always been a, an interest of yours. And at Masters Ball recently, you wrote about the flood of prospects coming down the pipe uh, from this point on in the season. Right now, mostly as injury replacements. But of course, in September, we'll get a lot of call-ups. Before we talk about specific players, how does the fantasy owner look at all these young players coming into the game and separate the prospects from the suspects? That's a good question. Uh, uh, there are specific things I look at. They're pretty basic, um, I, I think. But I, I, I look, and I look at similar things for hitters and pitchers. I look at age. I look at level of play. I look at strike zone command, meaning strike zone, meaning all walkouts, uh, walkouts, strikeouts to walk. Um, I look at extra base hits to hit in a prospect, and if in if a guy's got a good it shows, say, a 22-year-old, be a pitcher or a hitter, who's adjusted to double-A from single-A and has, hasn't really lost any skill set. There's 21, 22 years old and is successful there and can, as a, as a pitcher, can show a whip uh, of, say, under 1.25. And if you're a hitter and you can show an on-base percentage of over, say, 340, 350, especially if, if walks and strikeouts, there's not an egregious gap between walks and strikeouts. Those are indicators to me that say, this guy's worth watching. He understands the strike zone. As a pitcher, he understands how to move the ball around. As a hitter, he understands how the pitcher's going to play with him and where the ball will move around and wait for the kind of pitch that he can, he, he can do something with. And those are, those are mental skills that go with your physical skills that really enhance them and help a player make those jumps. And when I see those skill sets do well, I, I tend to go for them. I, and as, as a rule, they kind of tend to come true for me too. It's, it's interesting. It is interesting. And of course, the, the, the key thing to look at for me anyways, is those ex exact skills. And I, I hope that in the near future, we start seeing more hard hit ball data coming out of the minor leagues the way we have it in the majors. Cause I really like players who hit the ball hard. Sometimes they don't get the results we'd expect, but uh, I think in the longer run, anybody who puts the ball on the bat uh, in as a hitter or avoids putting allowing hard contact as a pitcher is a guy that's worth consideration, even if his results may be a little shaky as he moves up the levels. I, I'm not so sure about that. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I still think, and hitting the ball hard is a good thing. Don't, don't get me wrong, and it's interesting. But I still think, irrespective of anything else, just because you hit the ball hard, for example, it doesn't mean you're going to bat 335, right? It, it, I mean, we know, we know it's going to be hard to hit 400 no matter what because it's hard to do. In fact, it's hard to hit over 350 these days. And I think average is so, quote, average that I do think hitting the ball hard is fine. But in a universe where that is so peppered with as many duck snorts as it is, hard hit line drives at third baseman, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how you can delineate between the two anything long-term other than determine the guy's going to get 175 hits. And 175 hits is always good, no matter who does it, no matter how hard you hit the ball, isn't it? Well, it is, except that if you look at the statistics in Major League Baseball, at least the batting average on balls in play of hard hit 
Uh, hard hit balls is something like 60-65% of all trajectories, and the, and the batting averages on soft and medium hit uh, balls in play is more like 9%, 12%, something like that. So, I mean, and, and our common sense tells us that if you hit the ball hard, you, you are more likely to, to have a, a hit result from it regardless of trajectory. I mean, a, a hard hit ground ball gets through, a medium hit ground ball is an easy play. A hard hit fly ball gets to the warning track, maybe falls between a medium one's a can of corn, those kind of things. I'm not saying that I'll take a, a hard hit ball over a, a a guy who hits hard hit balls but strikes out a lot and doesn't walk much. But given two guys whose plate skills are similar, I'll take the guy who has a, a significant advantage in hard hit every time. I understand what you're saying. I, I don't so much disagree, but I do think, in theory, if those numbers are true, then we should see a rise in batting average, right? at least among the hard-hit ball guys. If their hard-hit ball rate rises, then yeah, you will, as a matter of fact. Then explain Manny, Manny Machado's struggles to me. Well, I mean, I don't have his hard-hit ball data in front of me, but uh, I'll, I'll go look at it later, and I'll freely admit if I'm incorrect in the conclusion of the show. But I, I will bet that on his hard-hit balls that he's he's probably batting pretty much what he should be on hard-hit balls and that maybe his hard-hit ball... Uh, the percentage of balls he hits that he hits hard is down somewhat. I don't know for sure, but I know from my own research that if you have a hitter who's hitting the ball hard more than another hitter, in the big picture, the guy who hits the ball hard has better results. It just it just it not only stands to reason, but it stands up to to examination. Uh, and and again, and for one, you know, Machado is just one example. Could be an outlier. He's picked up his numbers, but. I mean, he's hitting really well. And I like Manny Machado. I'm not knocking him or, or the stats. I just think sometimes we get over-enamored with 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 statistics or, 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 or we fancy them. And, again, everything you're saying is true. I would expect, then, that the guys who hit the hard-hit balls, at least in the future, should show us that they clearly have a higher batting average over when there's some kind of reasonable sample, or at least I wonder about it. I, you know, that I'm a hard sell on some stuff. I, I, I really, when it push comes to shove, I really rely most on, on base percentage and whip because everything else seems to be a subset of that. If you're a hitter, any skill set that you have ends up pushing, uh, that's a positive pushing your on base percentage up. And if you're a pitcher and you have good control and can keep runners off base, anything that you do will, will, will facilitate that. And, or any other stat is sort of a subset of that. So I, 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 I think the stat is interesting. I just, I'm just cautious about, about just going for it so gangbusters. And, again, that could be why I'm having trouble in my, in my labor leagues by not going for as much power and going for pitching because, I got stuck, which I guess kind of leads back to what I was saying originally about tout and staying relevant and, and staying on top of, uh, of of trends in the game. That that you know, because in, in that sense, your the the, the hard hit ball number makes make, or stats make total sense. If I'm not paying attention and everybody else is and everybody's beating me because I just miss it, then then maybe I should stop hitting my head against the wall because it's not working. Well, and to be clear, I mean Joey Gallo has a very high hard hit ball percentage, and and uh, 
and he's not a good batting average guy and he's in fact he's not that useful uh, as a fantasy asset because he's got a pretty low batting average in an OBP league he's much better because he does draw a lot of walks but but I don't think that uh, that the hard hit ball question alone is going to settle things you don't want a guy who strikes out a lot because uh, there's no hardness of strikeout and if you want if you want production, you have to get a guy who puts the bat on the ball reasonably often. And those very high strikeout guys, while they have some contributions to make, like Gallo uh, as an example, there is more to be had from a guy who makes more contact and hits the ball hard. And the results will play out across a wider range of categories, I think. No, no question about that. And, uh, you know, as with everything else, I'm, I'm reevaluating strikeouts. Just out of curiosity, do you have any idea how many guys have twenty have hit twenty? And this is through this is through Thursday's number or yeah, today's Friday. It's through Wednesday's numbers. I don't have I don't have last night, so Kyle Schwarber doesn't count. But um, how many guys have hit twenty or more homers this year? Do you know how many? I I'm gonna say maybe thirty five. About sixty seven. Wow. I know. I know. Because 20 homers in the major leagues at least used to be a big deal. Uh, it, it still is to me. That's, that's a difficult task to accomplish. And, but 67, and the reason I counted it out was I was wondering how many guys, because uh, uh, to use Gallo as an example, how many guys are going to hit 30 that will have lower draft uh, attraction or attractiveness just because, 20 guys or 25, 30 guys hit 30 homers, you know, in 2017. Does that mean that normally Joey Gallo, if he hits 40, who would, a guy who hits 40 homers should be a top three-round pick in a, in a snake draft, I would think. But if there's 35 guys who hit 30 homers, suddenly does Joey Gallo, what happens? Does he just drop to a seventh rounder because of his average? Or how does that work? You know, and... So, but I but I was really surprised. Not only that, the, the Cubs have five guys already with double digit with with more than twenty homers, which is that's incredible. I don't you know that the last time I remember something like that was like the Dodgers when they had when, when Ron Say and 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 Steve Garvey and Reggie Smith and all of their outfit. You know, they had like five six guys that had twenty homers, and they were such a dominant team. So I'm just kind of curious about that number. But it is interesting, isn't it? I think it is, and it's indicative of the general change in the environment. But uh, as far as the value of of these home runs, uh, I think Joey Gallo's value clearly declines in this environment for a couple of reasons. The first one being, if there's more of anything, simple economics tells us that each one of them will be cheaper. And I think that applies here. I mean, back in the day when uh, if somebody was hitting 45 or 50 home runs in a league where it was tough to hit 20, then that was clearly a premium value. And in, in, in much the same way that a guy who strikes out 270 batters in a year would be very valuable in a league that, that did happen so much and so forth and the second reason is i think whatever's causing the increased home runs and i believe it's mostly the baseball i think there may be other effects as well but i think the baseball has changed in a fundamental way that has increased the number of home runs but i think the effect is not distributed equally guys like gallo who hit at 485 feet 
They're going to get an extra 15 feet. It's just farther out of the ballpark. Who is benefiting? It's guys like Logan Morrison, Justin Smoke, in the early part of the year, Yondo Alonso. Guys who have mostly warning track power, all of a sudden, instead of wall scrapers, they're getting it over the fence by five or six feet. Those are the guys who are benefiting, and that's exactly what we'd expect, right? If you're picking up 10 feet of distance on on these fly balls, then you'd expect that the beneficiary would be a guy who's nine feet short of a lot of extra home runs. Not a guy like Stanton, not a guy like Joey Gallo. It's going to be those middle-of-the-road type guys with just short of the power they need for home runs who who are going to reap an outsized benefit. And there's going to be more home runs, but they're not going to be distributed the same way as they were when there were fewer. Uh, I, I think that's not only dead on, but I can think of a couple of good examples Um and them being Ryan Schimpf and actually Kyle Schwarber. Who, Schwarber's got 20 homers, but I think he's batting about 185 still. He's not hitting anything. Any link was sent down. And Ryan Schimpf also, I think he had 16 or 17 homers when he was sent down, and he hasn't been back. So, I, 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 and, you know, that points, that points to the and, – and Schwarber certainly has power. There's no question about that. But I don't know about Ryan Schimpf being a, a – I mean, if he'd stayed up, he probably would have – and played every day, he probably would have had a Chris Carter line where he would have batted 185 and hit 32 homers and knocked in 47 <laughs> runs or something like that. That's a very misleading season, I think. Uh, and, and I think that's the way the numbers are pointing, don't you? Yeah, that's, that is what it looks like because of the high strikeout totals. I, I did a story for Baseball HQ just the other day, a deep dive on Miguel Sano of the Twins. And, of course, this guy's got very massive power, and he hits a lot of home runs. He hits the ball very hard. But he doesn't get RBIs in nearly the proportion you'd expect for that many home runs. And the reason is you can't drive in any runs when you're striking out, and he's striking out a third of his plate appearances. And when, when that happens, that that's going to be the result, which to me means – when we're valuing these players or considering their value, each home run commands a little less than it used to or a lot less than it used to back in the day uh, when home runs were much scarcer. But maybe batting average and RBIs and runs scored will take a, a jump because the baseball environment is also increasing strikeouts, which means guys who don't strike out, who get on base and move around, all of a sudden might generate a little bit more interest because even if they're not hitting home runs, the fact that they get on base might mean, for instance, a guy with 15 home runs might RBI sh- uh, Schimpf because he just puts the ba- bat on the ball more. That, that's basically why, you know, I said earlier, I really, when push comes to shove, I go for on-base percentage because, if you don't get on base, you can't steal one, you can't knock in one, you can't score one, right? That, that, it's as simple as that. And I also think it, this is really to the point about the low RBI rate. I mean, I mean, there's no better example of that than, I think, Alonzo, who has, what, like 26 homers, and I think he, only, he barely has 55 RBIs. Joey Gallo has the 32 homers. I, think he has, I don't think he has 60 RBIs yet. There's, there, there's a few, a, a lot of guys like that. Schwarber has, I don't think, 50 RBIs, and he has 20 homers. There's quite a few guys with 20 homers, and it used to be if a guy hit 20 homers, that meant they knocked in 75 runs, and that's just not so anymore, it seems. 
and that's pretty much by default, right? I mean, it's not like back in the day where if you were the old Baltimore Orioles, their Earl Weaver strategy was always, you know, two 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 bloops and a blast. Walk a single, a three run jack, right? Yeah, and that was how you scored runs. But nowadays, not only does the 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 explosion of strikeouts affect the ability of the of the power hitter to drive in runs because he doesn't uh, get on base himself often enough or put the ball in play, but even if he does put the ball into play and even if he does hit it over the fence, he's got fewer teammates on base because they're all striking out too. Yeah, no, it's 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 very odd, and it's hard. It's, you know, it, it I don't. I, it's not frustrating to me. I do feel sort of sadness that power is everything, and the art of working the count and getting on base seems to be not what it used to be, because there is an art to it for sure. There, you know. There, Wade, Wade Boggs could get on base. It didn't matter. You know, he could bribe, bribe the umpire with a milkshake or something, but somehow he knew how to get on base, and he wasn't a power hitter, and he was a great ball player. And I, I just, it makes me sad to think if that skill, I, I hope that skill isn't going away. I hope we're just undergoing kind of a curve, and, you know, that whatever, whatever's chic now, somebody will figure out a solution, and getting base hits and taking pitches and walking will become vogue again, and hitting home runs, as exciting as they are, might diminish a little bit, and strategies might, at least the focus might change a little bit, if nothing else, just because that keeps it interesting. But I'd be, I'd be sad if the, of all the, the strike zone skill that uh, a really fine pitcher or hitter acquire and master um, that makes them so good, if those skills are diminished a little bit just in deference to just hit the ball as hard as you can or throw the ball as hard as you can, uh, that would be that would be a sad loss to the game to me. And, you know, I still love the game. It's still the game. I agree to a certain extent. I think that the this will correct itself in due course. Uh, I don't believe that Major League Baseball is going to do anything about the ball. The, the problem is that the casual fan likes home runs. The guy who goes to two games a year in the park and watches 10 games a year on TV or turns it on because his, uh, you know, he, he realizes that his favorite show is in rerun or something like that. That's who baseball is reaching out to, and they need home runs to keep those people interested. It's exciting when a guy hits a home run, or at least it is to people who don't watch the game that much. So if, if we can count on that i think maybe the source of a renaissance of that kind of player is going to be driven by the fact that that kind of player is going to be very cheap compared to a big home run hitter which means he's going to be uh uh, an inefficiency in the marketplace and i can see a guy like billy bean who's had some uh, bad years the last couple might realize that like the original Moneyball situation on base percentages not being highly valued enough or the ability to not strike out is not being valued enough and if you assemble a roster of guys like that maybe you score more runs even without home runs because you've got so many guys putting the ball in play i agree totally but it's kind of fun to see how guys counter. It's just like in football, you know. I, it, I, I love one of the reasons I love watching football is, and it's it's a lot more overt how you, because because it's kind of live action and guys are going are, are running around. But when when somebody comes up with something like Bill Walsh and his West Coast offense, there or, or Belichick who is so good at at, uh, at at changing out players and having one guy who can play four or five roles and move around and the other team uh, I, I, I like I like it when I like being able to watch coaches and managers literally outthink each other it's really fun for me 
So, I, you know, I, I, I would miss that if, if that left baseball. And I don't think it ever will, Lore, because, uh, as I said, some teams will be able to buy whatever it is that makes teams good or whatever the current theory is, but other teams have to think their way through it. The teams that don't have enough money or are too cheap to spend the money, uh, which is sometimes not exactly the same thing. And I I think these kind of uh, things operate in cycles. We're going to have a cycle where home runs are really big, and then eventually it'll, it'll drift off because somebody somewhere will figure out a way to buck against the tide and will have really good success despite spending half of what everybody else is spending. I, I think, I hope you're right. Um, well, you know, there's always, somebody's always got a new scam or a new way around stuff. And, you know, what will crack me up is if suddenly on base percentage becomes, you know, or at least the ability to take pitches and it becomes vogue again. That would be, that would be interesting. <laughs> And if, yeah, I, 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 I don't know if you ever heard this story, but um, the year that Jason Giambi won his MVP, I, I, had, I, I actually called that in the stat scouting notebook, the 1999 or 2000 notebook that I wrote in 99. I said Giambi you know, was, a, was a leader on a contending team and a serious MVP candidate. And I remember him having a good year. And... Uh, well, he had a great year. He had an MVP year, and everybody he was. I remember him being on on, on on baseball tonight and stuff, and everybody was talking to him about his on base percentage and his ability to walk, and that seemed to be like a big deal. And it was like a, a news point. And towards the end of the season, I remember seeing Ray Fossey and saying, "Hey, Foss, why is everybody making such a big deal out about this on base percentage stuff now? I mean, and." It's, it's like all the great hitters in the game always were good at taking pitches, you know. And he goes, well, the game is different now. And they went, but that doesn't make any sense. Like Hank Aaron or DiMaggio, they were, had great, great plate discipline, and they walked, they, they walked more than they struck out. Uh, Willie Mays or Babe Booth, all of those guys, Lee Gehrig, all the great hitters always displayed that skill. And he sort of scoffed and said, it's a different game, it's a different game. And I went, but, but it still doesn't make sense. The statistics say differently. And he goes, did you play the game? And I went, no. And he went, well, there you go. And he walked away. And <laughs> it was, I still wasn't very satisfied. I mean, I'm still not satisfied by it because it doesn't make sense to me, you know? No, it doesn't, and that's the answer you often get from uh, somebody who doesn't want to engage in the actual discussion, just uh, throws up, uh, you didn't play the game, like everybody who played the game is some kind of genius about it. I remember uh, reading an anecdote about uh, Yogi Berra when he was the hitting instructor for the Yankees, and he was trying to explain how to, to uh, some of these rookies in camp, uh, how to transfer weight and you know get a hip turn and all this kind of stuff, and after a while he said, ah, hell, just watch me do it, and you know, there's a there in all athletic endeavors. There's some people who can think their way through it, but for a lot of people, it's not an intellectual thing. It's just they're really quite gifted at hitting a ball or or catching a ball or whatever the case might be, and they tend to make pretty poor analysts. And in fact, this is kind of verging off the topic somewhat, but I find almost all former players in all sports make really terrible analysts when you when you have to listen to them on TV or radio. Oh yeah. It's, it's totally true. It's totally true. Um, there's actually, I know you're taping me. You can't, you can't, there's a, there's a postscript to the Ray Fossey story, but, but please don't. 
it's okay if you tell somebody I told you, but don't don't put this on the tape on the podcast, please. But I'm puzzled by this, right? I don't get it. So I get into the elevator to go up to the booth to do my work, and who's in the booth? Who's in the Vader? But Billy. And I know Billy, and we say hey, and I went, you know, I don't get it. I just had this conversation with Fossey, and I related it out. I don't understand, Billy. It doesn't make any sense. Can you explain it to me? And he looks left, and he looks right, and he looks at me and goes, Fossey's an idiot. Yeah, well, you wish, uh, then maybe somebody say, why is he in your broadcast booth then? You know, this is not a guy who should be offering insights into baseball when he doesn't actually have any beyond the fact that he knows all the cliches, he knows how to say the usual thing, and and, uh, they're just boring and and uninformative. I don't understand why so many organizations keep them there, except that they make great shills. They make great shills for the game. They'll never say a bad word about anything, and maybe that's what the, the... the organization's view of the of the broadcast is that it's a it's a big long commercial. It's not an event ex- actually aimed at an audience. The first time Diane was around me watching a ball game, and the you know I always turn the volume off, and she went, "I thought you liked baseball." And I went, "I do." She said, "Why don't you have the volume up?" And I went, "Because I can tell what's happening." And and I said, "But because I can tell what's happening, and I don't need the announcers to remind me that the pitcher needs to keep the ball down," you know. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Lore Michaels from Masters Ball. And, Lore, we were talking about prospects before we got diverted onto other onto other uh, issues. But in the column, you mentioned some prospects in particular who have come up, and you called the Phillies' Reese Hoskins perhaps the most promising of all of them. Why? There's a lot of prospects I like, but Hoskins, um, there's one statistic he did in the minors. He was having a great year. He was hitting 284, 29 homers, 91 RBI. 375 on base percentage, 64 walks, 75 homers. These are all great. He's 24, um, so he's a little older. He, he, if he's good, he should be succeeding. But he had uh, 114 hits, and out of those 114 hits, 57 of them, the 29 homers, I think he had uh, like 27 doubles. It, it, 57 of more extra base hits, doubles, triples, and homers, and that's extraordinary. Um and that's enough right there for me to be sold on him until he proves me different. You also like Colorado third base prospect Ryan McMahon, and I was a little surprised by that. A third base prospect in the Colorado organization that has Nolan Arenado at the top. Seems like this guy might need to find a new position, but what do you like about Ryan McMahon in general? He, he, he will have to find a new position. He's not going to... Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think Nolan Arenado is arguably the best player in the game. Um, you know, as good as Mike Trout is, he's, you know, Mike Trout is great, but add in, add in that Arenado is almost as good as Mike Trout and he's Brooks Robinson. And I think that just kind of pushes him into another time zone. So there's no way he's pushing him, but he could end up being a first baseman. He could end up being a left fielder. Um, he could end up being traded to another team. Um, he's got some pretty good power skills, uh, the, the thing I don't like, if, if I were going to compare him to Hoskins, he's not as good an on-base hitter. And just as a means of comparison, too, uh, this year he got 152 hits. Only 59 of those were for extra bases, so a third. So that that really, that, that basically, in less at-bats, Hoskins had almost as many extra base hits as McMahon did. One, shows why I like Hoskins better, and B, why, or why I like McMahon last, put it that way. 
Mets fans and fantasy players lore have been waiting for the team to call up Dominic Smith, which they finally did last week, and you like Dom Smith. What's the story there? Um, I, I like I like him. Uh, he's, uh, again, pretty decent on-base guy, 201 walks to 350 strikeouts. He had a good line uh, in the minors. He's only 22. But the thing that really makes sense and I like about him is He's a logic. He's a, a logical guy to move into first base, and then they can put Wilmer Flores at second base, which is really where he belongs. He came up as a second baseman, and he's really, really good. He's been waiting for a chance to play, and I, I think that just makes the right side of the Mets infield at, at least going into next season. Really, really interesting. Good young couple. Good young guys that that could be anchors for the team for a number of years. Moving along, I talked about Cubs catching prospect Victor Caratini last week with our National League analyst Harold Nichols. He was not as high as you are on this young catcher. What do you see with Victor Caratini that maybe we're missing? Um, same thing on base percentage, switch hitter on base percentage. Um, he puts the bat, you know, if you like contact rates, uh, over 76 games, he only struck out 46 times. So even though he, only, he walked 23, which isn't very many, 46 times, if, if he's going to be at bat, what, three and a half times per per game, that's uh, 240 at bats, and only one-sixth of them he struck out. That, that's a pretty good contact rate. And I also think catchers, you have to cut some slack for catchers. When they come up, if they don't hit right away, their primary job is to work with pitchers and frame pitches and make the pitchers successful. Hitting comes second. And so I tend to be patient with guys like that. If a guy has a good eye, makes good contact as a catcher in the minors, and then has a chance to learn uh, in the majors, with again, by working with pitchers and come along slowly, uh, they, they tend to be good hitters. I'm, I'm not looking for him to be a monster guy, but he could certainly be a 280 hitter with 9, 10 homers and knock in 65 runs. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a really fine. If he's got good defense and can, can frame a pitch, that's a, really good, that's a really good major league catcher. It's a good fantasy catcher for a few bucks, too, actually. I was going to say, he's a terrific fantasy catcher at, at uh, those kind of stats, especially the batting average side of things. Uh, staying in Chicago, Lore, the White Sox promoted their prospect, Nicky Delmonico, when Matt Davidson got hurt. Uh, and Delmonico really got off to a terrific start. I think he's, uh, last time I looked, three home runs. He's hitting about 350, 360, something like that. He's got an OPS over 1,000. Through 50 plate appearances, of course, is a relatively uh, tiny sample. So we can't really jump to conclusions and say that this guy's going to be another Nolan Arenado. But what can we legitimately expect from Nick Delmonico, do you think? Um. I, I think he's probably might be a, a decent reserve player. I mean, not reserve player, decent utility guy. Um, yeah, I, I, not that I'm a huge Matt Davidson fan, but Davidson is better. And, uh, you know, the thing about uh, Delmonico is his minor league portfolio just, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, it doesn't, doesn't scream out, even like the 23 walks to 46 punch outs for Caratini, which seems like a small thing, but there's nothing in his portfolio really, that made me go, ooh, oh, well, there's an interesting stat. There's an interesting, he does this well, he does that well. There's nothing in, that I saw in him that tells me he's going to be anything better than a, than, than, than a utility guy at that in the majors. And you're right, he's got a nice start. Ride the hot hand. 
good uh, reward for anybody who had to pick up a third baseman right when he happened to get called up because uh, ordinarily the guy like Nicky Delmonico, you look at him and think, well, I've already got third baseman. I don't need him. But boy, he's, uh, he's really done well. Uh, we're expecting lots more call-ups, of course, especially in September. But as injuries continue to pile up, uh, who are some of the potential impact guys you're still waiting for? Most of them have been brought up. I mean, I like Lewis Brinson. I, I hope he gets a chance. Um, and the guy I was, I was surprised that got brought up so quickly is, is uh, uh, Raphael Devers, who I, I love. And I just, I wasn't expecting him to come up that fast. It's, you know, I can't figure stuff out. But, but most of the guys I was waiting for, are, I'd like to see Jesse Winker make sure and get lots more playing time. Uh, I, you know. But the guys I look at most closely are, are, are in Oakland, and, and I'm actually really optimistic about Oakland. They have a potentially really nice infield of guys. Again, they all they brought all those guys up. I'd like to see. I'd like to see to, to fit your question, Franklin Barreto. I think they would the uh, the A's would be well served to bring him up in September, insert him at shortstop, leave Matt Chapman at third base, move Marcus Simeon to second, where he would be very he would he'd be an excellent second baseman where he's. Uh, a questionable shortstop, um, and, and, and keep Ryan Healy at first base. I think that's a really good, potentially young infield of guys that can play together and grow together and be really good. And then I see Chad Pinder going to, the, to right field because he's got a monster arm and he's got serious power. And, Lore, you had a Masters Ball column arguing that ADPs can be misleading. Now, this column was about football, uh, but it seems like a lot of what you said is also applicable in any sports fantasy draft. So what is your argument? The thing is about ADPs is their average draft position. And if you're going to draft by an average draft position, that means, well, for one thing, it just screams to me that you're going to draft an average team. (laughs) I don't know why, but... Since it's in the title, it's just sort of yelling at me. But mostly, I I I, I, th- I like to think that as as analysts, fantasy analysts, or columnists, or I, I think of us, you know, maybe we're therapists, whatever we are, to the people who follow us and read us. One of the things we need to encourage is empowerment on how to how to drive your team. And I think if you have an idea, I mean, maybe I've been mistaken it, 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 or, or put it this way working off of strong pitching used to be a successful way for me to create a team even and I did that because it worked for me and I didn't care what anybody else thought I'm willing to accept the fact that now maybe things have changed and I have to reevaluate the way I do it but I want to be the one to figure that out I don't want average I don't want to pick players by because everybody else thought that Giancarlo Stanton should be the number five pick that I'm going to pick in there. And worse, that I made a mistake by not doing it because I wanted to take a chance on Andrew Benatendi instead. And, and I'm not saying the team will win with Andrew Benatendi. And you, might, and, and you always have to temper the guys who are played because cause really a draft is just kind of, uh, it, it, it's sort of like playing chicken. You know, it's how long can I buy trying to sneak a guy through without anybody figuring it out so I can get him. So you do have to remember that, 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 that I'm, trying to, I'm, tr- I'm trying to win a, a kind of game of wits by waiting as long as I can to collect a player or paying as little as I can for a player that I think is going to be good. But similarly, I think we're e- much too easily swayed by, by public opinion and by what other people, what we think other people think we should do. 
And I think ADP just feeds that insecurity, and it, it, it kind of it, it, it defeats autonomy and empowerment of, of just picking the team that you want of the guys you think will do it, which is different than a team of guys that you like. That raises an interesting question. Uh, I know from having spoken with you before and and watching you draft, I know that you s- like to draft players you like, like that you want to watch and you, that you enjoy having some players on your team, and that's, a, in your mind, a, a reasonable reason to add them to your roster. H- has it ever gotten in the way of success for you, or have you been pretty happy that you've been successful and get to watch guys you like uh, ringing up stats for your team? Well, I haven't been too successful the last few years. But um, I, 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 I'm pretty objective. I, I, I won't. I, I, it's funny to me that, like in count, I'm last in OBP. And that's the first thing I look at. So I look at strikeouts to walk it on base numbers. So I'm not, I, have, I have to reevaluate again. How can I end up being at the bottom of the list when, when, when you use Chris Davis for an, as an example? His on-base percentage jumped like 30, 35 points second half last year. So I thought, oh, okay. He's got power. He's, he's clearly had a good second half, and he learned to read the strike zone better. It, it, and that what, what I don't understand is how that fails. <laughs> so, but uh, and 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 Davis turned out to be an okay pick for me. But um, no, sometimes I just end up being wrong about guys like Cole Calhoun, who I, I I've liked for a bunch of years, and and he progressively was getting seemed to be getting better. And he seems to have reached a high point, and now he's just getting worse, which means I'll probably never own him again. Well, that's not true. If I could get Cole Calhoun next year for $7, I will. But I would never pay more than that for him, not until he gives me a reason. I don't know if you saw this, Lore, but the other night, umpire Angel Hernandez was uh, doing a game behind the plate uh, with the Tigers, and Ian Kinsler argued during uh, one particularly egregious at-bat that uh, Hernandez might want to abandon his usual approach to balls and strikes and try calling strikes on pitches in the zone and balls on pitches out of the zone. In fact, Kinsler, Kinsler got thrown out. He didn't say a word. He just looked back at uh, at uh, Angel Hernandez, another terrible call, and Hernandez blew his stack and kicked him out. He ended up kicking out the manager too. So, okay, a guy got kicked out of a game. It's not news. What was interesting came after the game because Kinsler did not follow the usual pattern of brushing it off or deflecting it onto the PR person or the manager. He addressed the issue plainly and directly. He called them blatantly bad calls. He said that they were ruining the game. He said that, uh, that Angel Hernandez should consider a career change these kind of things this is very open and uh, and very challenging to the structure of baseball what do you think however can be done about this egregiously poor pitch calling which really can affect at bats it can affect game outcomes and game outcomes can even affect season outcomes this is a real problem i think and i hope uh, i wonder if you agree I, I well i think it's always been a problem um and I think it always will be a problem. I don't think going to an electronic strike zone will fix much. And the analogy I would use is they use slow motion instant replay in the NFL, and as often as not, they can't tell exactly where the tip of the ball hit anyway. So I don't, I don't think that really helps. And I'm an old-fashioned guy. I like, I like it's a game played by human beings. I like the human beings being the arbiters. That said... You know, if, if, if Hernandez is really egregiously bad at calling his pitches, then he shouldn't be doing his job anymore, and the league 
should come down on him. The league should be policing that. Uh, I, I think uh, Sandy Alderson was, was wasn't he? Didn't he put report cards in and they were supposed to tighten that stuff up? But but I I, I think in the end though, and this, uh, Kinsler, uh, the stuff I saw was is that Kinsler was right, except. <laughs> You know, what was the famous story about about Lincoln when he wanted to sign the Emancipation Proclamation and he pulled all of his cabinet and it was no, you know, no, 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 no. And it got to Lincoln and he said, I, the eyes have it. I think what you, what you, uh, you know, Hernandez is the umpire. He's he's calling the he's calling the balls and strikes. I think whether you like it or not, you, it doesn't help you to. To, to unfriend him, let's say. And I think people will always argue about strikes and balls. Hitters will always argue about strikes and balls. Even if they go to electronic stuff, they will always argue about it. Well, yeah, I, I think that you're right that they might start complaining that the that the um, machine is malfunctioning or something like that. But uh, uh, I'm on the opposite side of you on this. As listeners know, I think the sooner they go to some kind of um, visual computer type system that they're using now, very accurately getting uh, ball speed and ball location and the movement of the pitches and all this kind of stuff is being measured down to the tenth of an inch. I think that it's just got to be a better way of doing it than relying on a guy trying to call a ball that's moving through a three-dimensional pentagonal, pentagonal prism and trying to decide whether at 95 miles an hour some little piece of it caught some little edge of that prism. I just think it's, I don't, I don't begrudge Angel Hernandez for not being able to do this well. I don't think anybody can do it. I think it's beyond physical abilities to do this well, and if that's the case, might as well find a better way. I, I, I think you're probably right. However, Cubans have been doing it, and in general, I mean, I scored a lot of games. I, I scored, a, I, I saw a lot of pitches over the ten years I worked for MLB. I, I scored, I think, four hundred and fifty games. That's a lot of pitches I, I watched up close, and for the most part, umpires do a really good job. You know, they don't blow that many. And there's guys who, you know, it's like any profession. There's always, there's even, you know, there's bad lawyers and bad doctors, right? So I, I think it's, it's, it's naive of us to think that all, all of anything is perfect. But I also think it's naive of us to think that there will be a solution that will be perfect either. Every solution begets new problems no matter what way it goes. I just, and, and I don't know if it changes the game fundamentally. I just like the idea that human beings are playing it and human beings are judging it. And that's the bottom line, that, that, that we're human beings and we make mistakes and we're not perfect. But that adds, to me, that adds to sort of the romance and the charm of the game and of life as well. That, you know, life isn't perfect. It, 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 it's messy. And sometimes we make wrong calls. And, you know, in the end, I think the good calls and the bad calls and the good breaks and the bad breaks even themselves out. I don't think good calls even out with bad calls. I think I think good calls are the expectation and bad calls are just bad calls. And uh, there's probably more good than bad and we should be grateful for that, I suppose. But every time this subject comes up, my mind just flashes on two things. Eric Gregg calling out, I forget who was at the plate for Cleveland in that World Series, uh, on a pitch that was at least two feet outside and Don Denkinger calling a guy uh, incorrectly at first base. And, and we're talking about not just costing a team a game, that cost him the World Series. That's serious stuff. And 
the the idea that that I don't know where your position on the field was to watch all those pitches that were being thrown, but I bet it was fairly far away and and relative to where you need to be to know what whether a thing is a ball or a strike. And I think that's probably part of the problem as well is that observers of the game think we're seeing balls and strikes we don't know what we're seeing because of parallax and all these kind of different uh, issues with the camera not being quite on center and all and so on and so forth i remember vividly watching don denkinger uh, and but but i was i was a royals fan <laughs> so it was okay with me <laughs> but and that's part of the that's part of the mystique though is you know um but i was always directly behind the plate it was in the press box so i was several hundred feet removed from where the umpire was but I also had a TV monitor in front of me that was, you know, basically framed on the catcher and the ball striking, uh, crossing the zone. But and, and good calls, ultimately the way I mean it about good calls and bad calls and things working themselves out is the difference between, I, I think, over the course of a year or a career, I think the, 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 the opportunity or the situations where good and bad calls or good and bad plays, or seeing eyeballs, or that, or ones that get snared just right. I think they're about even. And the difference between a good team and a bad team is a good team will take advantage of a bad call or a bad hop or something like that and win, and a, a and a bad team won't. And that's that's what kind of what makes the difference. And how that's how the Zen goes to me that. That, that both teams will get X number of, of good calls and bad calls against them, but the good team will take advantage more often than the bad team. And in that sense, that means the good team will rise to the top, in theory. <laughs> yeah, it's a good theory until you're a far superior Cleveland team playing Miami and the bad call is strike three on the last batter of the World Series. Oh, yeah, well, I was going to say that, you know, it worked for me because I was a Royals fan, but if you were a Cardinals fan in, uh, in, in 19, what was it, 1985, uh, you were not real happy with Don Denkinger for a long, long time. In fact, I even, I even, <laughs> I, I, I wrote a, you know, I'm a songwriter. I wrote a parody of Walking on the Moon by the police, and I, I recalled it, uh, renamed it Walking on Har, you know. I want a big pay hike, Walking on Har. I want to get call strikes, Walking on Har. So. <laughs> I wonder what you think the, uh, the, fantasy impact could be as far as uh, Ian Kinsler is concerned obviously he's going to get suspended for some games which will take him out of the lineup and you can't well I guess you can reserve him depending on your league rules but in our league you can't and uh, but more more in the longer term is Ian Kinsler now going to be in the crosshairs of every umpire in Major League Baseball and he's not going to get the benefit of the doubt ever or has by speaking out has he basically guaranteed that they're going to really be careful to call strike strikes on Ian Kinsler because they know that if they don't, they're going to be accused of uh, loading the deck against him. I, I, I suspect that, I mean, he made, he made the umpire look bad. It's not good. You know, the other umpires don't want their guy looking bad, even if he was wrong. Just stupid. I, you know, I will just, just, if a guy makes a mistake, the guy should say I made a mistake and that's that, you know, and, and own up to it. And, and everybody's happy. Well, I don't know if everybody's happy, but at least assuming some kind of responsibility like that shifts the dynamic. Uh-huh. Um, so, and, and, and I think we all need to do that no matter whether we're umpires or not. Um, I, I don't know if it would help Kinsler to say, maybe I shouldn't be speaking out like this, but it's the way I feel. I mean, he should have a right to voice his opinion and, and, and not be penalized for it, but unfortunately, human beings aren't like that. 
which which is not good. I mean, basically, what that says uh, that that just supports the history of you not being able to speak out against umpires, um, which then means I have no way of criticizing them. Which then means well, they're always just going to do what they're going to do, and I have no control or power over it anyway. So that that's kind of uh, I don't know if that sounds cynical or not, but. It, it, it certainly takes the romance and the optimism out of baseball for me. Uh, I, 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 I would like to think that as a result, Kinsler, you know, thinks maybe, uh, maybe I got to be a little more careful next time, but I admire, I still admire for speaking his mind, but that the umpires all go, let's just do our job the way our job's supposed to be done and screw everything else. You know what? Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe they get on Hernandez and say, "Look, look, these things that you made bad calls here. He was right. You know, get 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 it together." Uh, that's what I would hope would happen. However, human beings are kind of weird, and I just like I fostered that I could win with good pitching for ten years. I think we're slow to change. We are indeed, uh, Laura. Uh, before I let you go, I know every time you come on the show, I like to ask you what you've been listening to. Uh, give us a cool tune. Oh. Um, I have a I have a bunch of them. Uh, I I really if I could give you a few, I really like the stuff. I listen to a bunch of old bands. Galaxy Five Hundred. I like the song Blue Thunder. I like uh, there's a, a really good British band, real good Britpop band called The Scientist, and they have a song Frantic Romantic. I really did. But Gene McCaffrey, our good friend, uh, wise guy and in Outward, he turned uh, us on the rock remnants onto. He's been talking about the pillows for a while, and. The song that he turned us on to, Little Busters, is a real smoker. With a kiss they call the future When the kids turn me the masters Just waiting for the Lord past us Oh yeah With a kiss they call the future When the kids turn me
From a live concert in 2014 at the Tokyo Dome City Hall. That is the great Japanese power pop punk band, The Pillows. And Little Buster's Lore Michael's pick for a cool tune. And Lore, your choice makes The Pillows the first band ever to be picked for cool tunes on Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, well, I think last time, didn't I do Neutral Milk Hotel? And uh, I think it was the King of Carrot Flowers that I was with liking. And somebody even, I think, tweeted, Wow, I never thought I'd hear Neutral Milk Hotel on. Baseball HQ, good job. I don't remember. I like that. I like that guy, whoever he was. <laughs> like little pillows. Too. I mean, uh, little Buster too. I don't know. I don't know how you can not not like it because, uh, especially if you look at, at the video on YouTube, it's an excellent concert video. It really gets the energy of the band, the energy of the show. Although I have to say, Laura, the fans in uh, the Tokyo Dome don't quite roar like North American and European fans when uh, songs end. And for me, that's a big part of going to a concert when they, that that big roar when the song is over. Also, when they recognize, you know, after a few bars. Right. Oh, you know, this is light, light, light heat. I love this song, right? Yeah. But yeah, there's no mosh pit either. I think they're more polite than we are. We got to give, we, you know, they're an older culture. They're a 6,000-year-old culture. We're only a 300-year-old culture. We're, we're still kind of infants and, and stuff like that, you know? Laura, it's been a gas. As always, tell us where listeners can read more from Laura Michaels. Uh, you can find me uh, at Masters Ball. Uh, um, pretty much every day of the week I write something. Every Monday at the USA Today, uh, I write the Sizzle Fizzle column uh, for my good friend Steve Gardner and for all those fantasy folks out there in the big universe. And then every Thursday night on the Fantasy Sports Radio Network, uh, I host the Towers Hour with my mate uh, Justin Mason, who's from Friends with Fantasy Benefits. And we usually have a theme and have... In fact, I have to have you on. We have the touts on and people talking about strategy. And uh, uh, that's every Thursday night from uh, 9 to 11 uh, East time and 6 to 8 Pacific time. Uh, and it's, it's big fun on the Fantasy Sports Radio Network. Well, I hope I do get on. I, I enjoy the show, and I'd like to be a part of it. And, uh, Laura, again, thank you so much for being on this show. I do appreciate every time you come on. You're a lot of fun to talk with, and I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Patrick. I a, enjoy talking with you, and I know, I know, I know the conversation strayed way from what the things that we were going to talk about, um, and so I hope that was good. But it was a great conversation. I always enjoy talking with you, and we will have you on the on the Towers Hour. I have you on my list. You're doomed. <laughs>
Laura Michaels writes for Masters Ball, as you heard, USA Today, and he's got a show that I'm going to get on one of these days on the Fantasy Sports Network, Thursday evenings, 9 to 11 Eastern. Uh, next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute is back. Playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. The whole shebang coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. It's a time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time today, we look at the situation in the St. Louis bullpen after the injury to Trevor Rosenthal, amongst all the other news. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd vets the performances of Starling and Kettle Marte, among others, as well as Madison Bumgarner. And in Bullpen Buyer's Guide... And in the Bullpen Buyer's Guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at ultra-high-skill relievers and wraps up his fantasy trade exercise from the previous week. And that's just a small sampling of all the great content at BaseballHQ.com all the time and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here, with a look at White Sox right-handed pitching prospect Alec Hansen, is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The Chicago White Sox have received a lot of attention for the trades they've made over the last 18 months, adding elite-level talents like Juan Moncada, Lucas Giolito, Ronaldo Lopez, Michael Kopech, Blake Rutherford, Dylan Cease, and Eloy Jimenez, among others. One side effect of adding such impact talent is that the organization's internal prospects tend to get overlooked. One such player is right-hander Alec Hansen. The Sox added Hansen with their second-round pick in the 2016 draft after an inconsistent career at the University of Oklahoma. The six-foot-seven right-hander pounds the strike zone with a plus-plus fastball that sits at 94 to 97 and tops out at 99 miles an hour. He backs up the heater with a nasty hard slider, a curve, and a below-average changeup. As with many tall pitchers, Hansen struggles to repeat his mechanics, but has shown improved control and does get good downhill tilt on his fastball. The 22-year-old Hansen has been dominant since turning pro, posting a career 2.24 ERA. Through 23 starts in 2017, Hansen is 10-8 with a 2.64 ERA in 126 innings between low and high A. Control does continue to be an issue, and he's walked 3-point batters per 9, but he's also struck out 11.9 per 9, ranking second in the minors with 166 punchouts. Alec Hansen still has some work to do, but his size, velocity, and ability to rack up Ks make him an excellent keeper in most long-term keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Minnesota right-hander Aaron Seegers. Had a pretty good first start. I was listening to it on the radio. Baltimore outfielder Anthony Santander, Seattle right-hander Tiago Vieira, and all all the call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for playing time, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the AL Central and September call-ups in Chicago and Cleveland. 
And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. As the calendar inches closer to September, it's time to start looking at roster expansion and September call-ups and which ones you might want to get a head start on to make that final push in your redraft leagues. Mike Shears highlighted White Sox prospect Lucas Giolito in his playing time tomorrow column this week on the site as a pitcher who could certainly make an impact down the stretch. Now, Giolito's stock has fallen a little bit. He used to be considered one of, if not the top pitching prospects in baseball with the Nationals, but he's been hot of late at AAA Charlotte. Over Giolito's last seven starts dating back to August 15th, he's put up a 320 ERA, 12% swinging strike rate, 54% ground ball rate and more strikeouts than innings pitched. We slotted Giolito as the number 35 fantasy prospect in our midseason update. And with the White Sox being totally out of it and in a full rebuild, it makes perfect sense for them to give Giolito another shot in September. And that shot, particularly against softer major league lineups in September, could mean a boost if you're planning ahead. Deep leaguers should also keep an eye on Ronnie Rodriguez in Cleveland's system, as Mike noted in the same PT Tomorrow column. Rodriguez is 34 for his last 103 with 8 homers and 4 steals at AAA Columbus. He's not a major prospect, but the plate skills are strong and they could translate well at the big league level. So as current Indians starting second baseman Jason Kipnis has been dealing with hamstring issues, you never know if Ronnie Rodriguez might get the call. The biggest takeaway here is to start paying attention to possible September call-ups now. Focus on the ones with the prospect pedigree and the skills and those who will get enough playing time to make an impact. As usual, we'll have you covered in our playing time today and tomorrow columns, as well as in daily call-ups the rest of the way. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield is the director of social networks at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Atlanta outfielder Ronald Acuna and Dodgers starting pitcher Wilmer Font. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. He may be only 19, but he's probably coming soon to a park near you. That's right, we're talking about our first frequent flyer, Atlanta Braves outfielder Ronald Acuna, who has raced through three levels of the minors in 2017, compiling a 321 average while showcasing a power-speed combination that has produced 19 home runs and 37 stolen bases in 2017. Since being promoted to Triple A Gwinnett on July 13th, Ronald Acuna has accrued a 341 batting average with seven home runs and four steals through 33 games, despite currently being the youngest player in Triple A. In addition, let's not forget that Atlanta just recently promoted 20-year-old second baseman and former frequent flyer Ozzie Albies on August 1st. Could Ronald Acuna be next? With May-September call-ups right around the corner, maybe now is a great time to stash Ronald Acuna, especially in keeper leagues. However, despite Ronald Acuna's exceptional 321 batting average, use caution here. A closer look shows that Ronald Acuna's 74% contact rate indicates that he might be among the hackers of society, according to BaseballHQ.com metrics. 
Plus, Raul Dakuta's 402 batting average on balls in play just screams regression. That's why Ronald Dakuta, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. Even so, Ronald Dakuta's power-speed combination is enticing. Speaking of enticing, how about the strikeout potential of 27-year-old Los Angeles Dodgers starter Wilbur Font, whose strikeout total of 168 currently leads all AAA pitchers. Through 23 starts, Wilbur Font has produced five double-digit strikeout games, including a 15-strikeout gem against Sacramento on May 15th. That translates to a dominance rate of 12 strikeouts per nine, far exceeding the seven strikeouts per nine benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. Yet despite its stellar numbers, it may be difficult for Wilbur Fawn to crack the Dodgers' rotation, which currently leads Major League Baseball with a 317 ERA. Still, it's difficult to ignore a command ratio of 5.25 strikeouts to walks, nearly double a three strikeouts to walks benchmark for elite pitchers, according to BaseballHQ.com. In other words, Wilbur Fawn has some talent. Talent. That's important because, quoting Dodger great Sandy Koufax, in the end it all comes down to talent. You can talk all you want about intangibles, I just don't know what that means. Talent makes winners, not intangibles. Can nice guys win? Sure, nice guys can win. If they're nice guys with a lot of talent. Nice guys with little talent fish fourth, and nice guys with no talent fish last. So don't finish fourth or even last. Instead, consider adding the talent of both Ronald Dakuna and Wilbur Font, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. We rate matchups on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start, while ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones we call those our wild cards, they're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Gio Gonzalez and Luis Castillo, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Only one pitcher has a recommended start matchup rating this weekend, and you probably already know that Chris Sale is pretty good, but two of the three next best matchup ratings belong to pitchers facing one another. So let's look at both ends of this weekend's marquee matchup on Sunday in San Diego. The Padres' Denelson Lamette is taking on the visiting Washington Nationals' Gio Gonzalez. Lamette has a matchup rating of 065, and Gonzalez has a matchup rating of 071. In the August 14 USA Today Power Rankings, the San Diego Padres are number 26, and that's their highest ranking of the season. The Washington Nationals are number 2, even without Bryce Harper. At home, San Diego is 5 games over 500. On the road, Washington is 14 games over 500. Versus right-handers, Washington is 16 games above 500. Versus left-handers, San Diego is 5 games below 500. Against teams with winning records, San Diego has lost 17 games more than it's won. Against teams with losing records, Washington has won 17 more games than it's lost. The Nats have an obvious advantage. Yet there's only a 0.06 difference between the marquee matchup men's positive wildcard ratings, slightly favoring Gio Gonzalez. In his past 12 starts, Gonzalez has 8 PQS dominant efforts. In 24 starts overall, his PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 42% dominant to 13% disaster. 
Gonzalez has benefited from a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 83%, creating a differential of more than a run and a half between his ERA of 249 and his expected ERA of 411. A control rate of 3.5 walks per nine hasn't helped Gonzalez, and his first pitch strike rate of 55% doesn't offer much hope for improvement. But a dominance rate of 8.2 strikeouts per nine and 11 wins have given Gonzalez a roto value of $25, a surprising sum from a BPV of 77. Expect Gonzalez's good luck to continue on Sunday. 24-year-old Denelson Lamette has 14 major league starts in his rookie season of 2017. Over his past 10 outings, Lamette has posted five PQS dominant efforts and two PQS disasters. Like Gonzalez, Lamette has a control rate of 3.5 walks per nine and a first pitch strike rate of 55%. But the similarities end there. To begin with, Lamette has had less luck. In particular, his strand rate of only 62% creates a differential of about one run between his ERA of 478 and his expected ERA of 384. With an average fastball velocity of 95 miles per hour, Lamette has a swinging strike rate of 13% and a dominance rate of 11 strikeouts per nine for a fine BPV of 119. As the saying goes, sometimes it's better to be lucky, like Gonzalez, than good, like Lamette. In the case of our marquee matchup mismatch between the number two Nationals and the number 26 Padres, that's probably true. But unless you're protecting precarious leads in all your pitching categories, there's little reason to fear using Lamette either. Lamette is an underrated young pitcher on a bad team, and Gonzalez is an overperforming veteran on a good team. Either or both can be useful on Sunday. For our Sunday surprise, let's look at two more 24-year-old National League rookies with wildcard matchup ratings on the positive side of zero. In Atlanta, Braves left-hander Sean Newcomb has a matchup rating of 009 for his home start. The visiting Cincinnati Reds counter with right-hander Luis Castillo and his matchup rating of 048. The matchup rating differential favors Castillo and the Reds by 039. In the August 14 USA Today Power Rankings, the Braves are number 22 and the Reds are number 27. The standout weakness is Cincinnati's MLB worst ERA of 530. Even Atlanta's 477 is more than three-quarters of a run better. The Reds do score more than the Braves, but both teams have a negative run differential of around three-fourths of a run. Overall, the Braves are 12 games under 500, and the Reds are 21 games under 500. On the bright side for Cincinnati is a 9-11 record over the past 20 games. During that same span, Atlanta is a Major League Worst 6-14. Versus lefties, the Reds are a Major League Worst 16 games under 500. Versus righties, the Braves aren't that much better at 12 games under 500. At home, Atlanta is 4 games below 500. On the road, Cincinnati is 19 games below 500. Advantage Atlanta, such as it is. The Braves' Sean Newcomb has been a highly rated prospect since he was drafted in the first round by the Los Angeles Angels in 2014. Newcomb earned a 9E rating in BaseballHQ.com's 2017 Minor League Analyst, meaning our scouts and analysts gave him a 10% probability of reaching his maximum potential of an elite number 2 starter. His bugaboo has been control, and he averaged about 5 walks per 9 in the minors. In 65 innings over 12 major league starts so far, there's been no change in that stat. But Newcomb has struck out more than a batter per inning, reflecting the upside that makes him an alluring investment for the future. Newcomb has two PQS dominance and three PQS disasters at home this season. And his surprising matchup rating above zero stems mostly from the Reds' weakness. It may only be a matter of time before Newcomb masters his control, but that time is probably not this Sunday. 
Cincinnati's Luis Castillo has started 11 Major League games, posting an equal number of three PQS dominant and three PQS disaster outings. But all three of his PQS doms have come on the road. His ERA and expected ERA are close at 339 and 373 respectively. His whip is a fine 118, and with an average fastball velocity above 97 miles per hour, Castillo's calling card is a dominance rate of nine strikeouts per nine innings on a strong swinging strike rate of 13%. The worries are a first pitch strike rate of just 56% and the double dose of good fortune from a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 77%. Still, with a BPV of 93, Castillo seems to be on a surprisingly fast track to success in more ways than one. He could help you as soon as this Sunday. Check our site to get updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about the retirement of Jared Weaver. I've decided to step away from baseball. While I've been working hard to get back on the mound, my body just will not allow me to compete like I want to. So said Jared Weaver on Wednesday of this week, announcing his retirement after 12 seasons in the big leagues. Too many innings, too many injuries, too many years. When I think of Jared Weaver, three things pop into my mind, displacing the usual cobwebs and dust up there. First, he was a really good pitcher, both in fantasy and on the field. As well, he was a guy who helped me see beyond some conventional wisdom about pitcher skill. That is, a pitcher might have a skill for which he's not getting full credit, and that maybe I should start looking for other pitchers who had it. And finally, he made a decision about where he wanted to play that was controversial at the time, but might have foretold how pro athletes consider where they're going to play. First, performance. Weaver was really good for quite a while. Drafted 12th overall in 2002 by the Anaheim Angels. He made his debut in 2006 with the LA Angels of Anaheim. If he'd been a few years older, he might have played for the California Angels too. In that first year, he was fifth in Rookie of the Year voting after posting 11 wins in 19 starts. He also had a 2.56 ERA, a 103 whip, and 105 strikeouts in 123 innings. That was good for about 17 bucks in 5 by 5 value, the sixth highest among AL starters. Not too bad for a rookie. The bloom was off Weaver's Rose over the next two seasons, though. He laid down a couple of $5 duds that deflated his expectations. But in 2009, he burst back onto the scene with a $15 year, and that just set the stage for a three-year peak as the second most valuable American League fantasy starter, trailing only Justin Verlander. From 2010 to 12, Waver had a 273-103 aggregate ERA and whip, 573 total strikeouts, including a league-best 233 in 2010. He finished 5th, 2nd, and 3rd in Cy Young voting, losing to Felix Hernandez, Verlander, and David Price in that order. That's pretty good company. Things fell off pretty fast for Weaver after that peak, though. Elbow, hip, back, and neck injuries began to take their tolls. His fastball velocity declined pretty dramatically, and by 2015, he was putting together negative value, not even really rosterable for fantasy purposes. He hung in there through those seasons and gave it a run again this year, but he went on the DL in May, and he's never coming back. It was an unfortunate, even sad, end to Jared Weaver's Major League career, but boy, what a peak. Jared Weaver was on the rosters of a lot of championship fantasy teams. 
The second thing rattling around the attic of my mind about Jared Weaver was that he made me understand something I was pretty confident I already knew. Namely, I knew that pop-up infield flies were randomly distributed among all pitchers, and not a skill. The fantasy baseball wise guy Gene McCaffrey brought Weaver to my attention in an interview on this very podcast. I don't remember when this was, but Gene pointed out that the percentages of Weaver's fly balls that were infield pop-ups had been in double digits every year, well above the game-wide average every year. Then Gene asked me, when a guy has done something every year for six or seven straight years at the major league level, shouldn't we think it might be a skill? Well, we should have, and indeed it was. I did some further research and found that a handful of pitchers consistently had pop-up percentages well above league norms. Weaver was one, Marco Estrada was another. This was pretty interesting, because Estrada and others are flyball pitchers, and flyball pitchers usually had lower projected values because flyballs become extra base hits and home runs, and that raises ERAs. But those flyball numbers included the pop-ups and valued them as though they were outfield flyballs. But pop-ups are just automatic outs, except for the occasional after-you-Alphonse-Vaudeville routine where the four infielders stand around waiting for each other to catch the damn thing. Pop-ups never fall for extra base hits or home runs. They were being negatively valued as potential extra base hits and home runs, in fact, when they should have been valued as hidden strikeouts. Of course, this didn't matter for most pitchers since they all had the same low rates of infield flies to fly balls. But for the Weavers and Estratas and others in that small cohort of infield fly generators, it mattered a lot and it was a source of hidden value. Finally, I remember Weaver for causing something of a stir with his contract, but not for the usual reasons collecting the biggest possible payday, the model universally beloved of soreheads who like to grouse about players being paid like they are and causing ticket prices to go up. Uh, no they don't. Instead, Weaver made news for not chasing the biggest bucks. After his tremendous performances in 2010 and 11, even though Weaver was a year short of free agency and therefore still under cost control, he seemed to have a lot of leverage in contract negotiations. The savviest move to maximize his coming payday would have been for Weaver to wait until after 2012 when he could hit the free agent market. Estimates were he would get at least $25 million per season, in no small part because his agent was Scott Boris whose preferred method is for his clients to go to free agency and get the money. Instead, Weaver signed an extension with the Angels after 2011, while he was still under control. He got $85 million over five seasons, an average of $17 million per. By some analysts' light, he had cost himself something like $8 million a year. To his credit, Weaver didn't care. He was a SoCal kid. He liked playing in Anaheim. He pitched for Simi Valley High in Long Beach State. And he told ESPN, and I quote, If $85 million is not enough to take care of my family and other generations of families, then I'm pretty stupid. But how much money do you really need in life? I've never played this game for the money. I played it for the love and the competitive part of it. It just so happens that baseball is going to be taking care of me for the rest of my life. Of course, the biz of baseball cognoscenti had a field day predicting that Weaver's lower-than-market salary would somehow anchor the salary expectations of other top pitchers going into free agency. Uh, no. It didn't work that way. The top pitchers in the free agent group, Zach Greinke and Cole Hamels, got over $24 million a year and Matt Cain a little over 21. In all of this, Weaver might actually have been a harbinger of what to expect in the pro-athlete salary negotiation environment. 
Given that the salaries for top stars are going to be fantastically large wherever they go, we're starting to see them thinking about other factors, including lifestyle, the team's potential to win championships, outside business opportunities, even the weather. In fact, we've already seen this in undervalued deals like Kevin Durant's in the NBA. And that didn't make Weaver the kind of sucker or dimwit some critics tried to make him out to be. Rather, it made him a guy who understood the value of all the parts of his life beyond just the dollars. And that should be enough for everyone. Add in his fine on-field and fantasy career, especially its elite peak, based in part on a skill at inducing pop-ups, which helped me at least understand something new and useful about fantasy value, well, Jared Weaver won't be going into the Hall of Fame, but we're lucky to have had him in our game. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Lore Michaels from Masters Ball and USA Today. Lore's a terrific baseball analyst, a really good writer, and he's one of my favorite guests here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast and just to hang around with. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, or please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going by attracting new listeners. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.